Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. And once again, we're back. I'm Josh Pate. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast for Thursday morning, September 24th. Only time hopefully we ever say this in the rest of our lives. The week before... SEC Saturday begins. Yeah, well, we're finally here. So at least there's that. It is very early on this Thursday morning. I always tell myself I'm going to get up extra, extra early, record this, and then go back to bed and get a few hours of sleep in before our Thursday morning editorial meeting, which is yet to happen. So I'm probably up for a long time. We got Late Kick Live happening tonight. Always look forward to that. We've had really good viewership on those shows, and that figures to only increase with the SEC and then really when the SEC and the Big Ten are both back. A reminder of what this is, and this is the Late Kick Extra podcast. This is the mailbag-only edition. We do two a week. I take your submissions via email, joshpate706 at gmail.com. I go back and forth with you on Twitter about a lot of things, but you can also submit questions in my DMs there at Late Kick Josh. I would also kind of sidebar that and encourage you, if you haven't already, follow me on Twitter at Late Kick Josh. Really important stuff that happens. We're not always recording podcasts or doing a show while those things are happening. So that's an excellent place to get back and forth with me. I talk to all of you. I mean, I make myself as available as possible. That doesn't mean that some comments don't slip through the cracks from time to time, but I do try and get back in touch with every single one of you who send me DMs and in the emails and comments on the YouTube channel. So I appreciate all that. Five-star reviews. We are driving towards a 1,000 five-star reviews for the podcast, so please give us one of those. You can also submit questions in the written review for the podcast. So we have a lot to get to this morning. No time to waste. And I wanted to start it off kind of with a question that should be on everyone's mind right now. Bama Stanley, 89, leading us off this Thursday morning. And Bama Stanley simply asks, hey, where's the big upset this weekend? And you know what? I don't have a big upset pick this weekend, but I'll tell you this. I've got a little uneasy feeling the closer that we get to Saturday. I got a little uneasy feeling, which is the opposite of a peaceful, easy feeling in the back of my mind, because that's the kind of Saturday where crazy things happen. And that's in a normal year, guys. So think about where we are right now. We're in a situation where some conferences haven't played yet in an atypical year. You have really no confidence as to what to expect. And so what I did is I pulled up the board here, and I'm just going to kind of scroll. And let's talk about some of these out loud. I'm not going to do any game breakdowns here. If you want those, we have been doing them on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. I'll do some more of them tonight. So check out Late Kick Live. Got some additions to the Ramen Noodle Express, our five best bets of the week. That's coming tonight. But as for now, let's look at this. You know, I'm high on Florida this week. Florida is our best bet. Florida minus 14. Or thir- we got it at 12 and a half, actually. Florida minus 12 and a half. It's sitting at 14 right now. Is our best bet of the week. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean that things couldn't go sideways. And so I'm thinking hypothetically here, where could the big upset be? Well, I think that'd be pretty big. What if Lane Kiffin and 
his debut as an SEC head coach. What if they stun Dan Mullen and the Gators? Everyone in Florida is looking down the road. When do we play LSU? You know, that road trip to A&M. When do we get Florida or Georgia, rather? Are we going to be ready for that? Well, that could go sideways pretty quickly, couldn't it? I think most people, if they're picking a big upset for at least a top 10 team falling, it would be Auburn at home against Kentucky. That line currently sitting at seven and a half. I don't know how big an upset I would call that. I know history would call it an upset because Kentucky's not supposed to beat Auburn at home in a standard situation, but I don't know that this is standard, and the reason is because I don't know that the two edges Auburn would have 99 times out of 100 are there. They don't have the home field edge, which would disproportionately impact Kentucky because of obvious reasons, and then they also don't have a line of scrimmage edge. If they do have it, it's not glaring to the degree that it normally would be and be worth a couple of touchdowns or more, well, there you sit. Even with home field factored in, Auburn, a seven and a half point favorite. We've got that line. Our own internal numbers have it even closer than that. So I picked Auburn to win that game, to, to win it very close. So Kentucky winning that game wouldn't be a surprise to me at all. In fact, I'll give you the bigger surprise. The bigger surprise would be if I turn that game on, and let's not kid ourselves, I'll watch the whole thing, but if I turned it on in the fourth quarter, and Gus Malzahn's team was up three touchdowns, that would surprise me more than it being a three-point game either way. Elsewhere, Texas feel pretty good about them this week, but they go on the road to Texas Tech. They are an 18-point favorite. We got in on that one at 16.5. LSU, that's a top-10 team that a lot of people don't know what to expect. Problem there is they're playing a team in Mississippi State that you probably know even less about than the LSU squad that lost, I don't know, like what's the last count, 75 or 80 players from last year's team. I kid, but not by much. So, yeah, I mean, I think that one would surprise me, to be honest with you. I don't know that Mississippi State, everyone's fear in the back of their mind about Mike Leach is, oh my goodness, what if he gets that offense rolling and what if LSU secondary is discombobulated? I don't know that Mississippi State has the talent at wide receiver this year even at the best of times, to get that system and that offense rolling to the degree it needs to, to beat teams in the SEC like LSU. I want to remind you, the overall level of defensive back play here will be unlike anything consistently that Mike Leach's offenses have had to go up against, again, week to week. And so what difference does that make? Well, the difference is this. Mike Leach is a guy I've looked at offensively as someone who they really don't have a plan B. If plan A is not working, then that's it. We'll pack it up, we'll head home, and we'll try again next Saturday. Good defensive back play and the ability to press at the line of scrimmage and the ability to disrupt at the line of scrimmage, which you week to week see more frequently in the division he's going to play in now, that's like throwing the crowbar in the bicycle spokes. The bike doesn't slow down. The bike just stops, you fly over the handlebars, you skin your face up, and you go home and your mom asks what happened, and you say, well, I faced really good defensive backs today. She goes, what does it have to do with riding a bike? I don't know, but you get it. Here's the one that I'm looking at. The one I'm looking at where I think the biggest upset could come that's off of everyone's radar is Army over Cincinnati. Our numbers have that one tighter than the line is. The line on this thing is 13. That's dropped overnight from 14, I believe. Army over Cincinnati, I have not heard a soul talk about this week. Army over Cincinnati is not an upset I'm picking. Let me be perfectly clear. If you were to say, all right, there will be a big upset this weekend, guess where it's going to be? My guess would be Army over Cincinnati. 
There's no way Arkansas is beating Georgia. There's no way. Having said that, there is a way that you could turn that game on in the fourth quarter, and it's 17-6 to Georgia, and they tack on a late touchdown, is 23-24-6, whatever, and you go, that's it? That's all? Eh. When you can't score, there's really not much incentive in opening week, especially, for the other team to push it and allow you an opportunity to come in the back door via turnovers. I think that may be the way Georgia and Kirby Smart play this thing this weekend. So I don't think that one's going to be the most aesthetically pleasing offensive performance that we've ever seen. But I also don't think there's much of a chance Arkansas beats them. Missouri's not beating Alabama. The other one on the board that would, to me, be a pretty big surprise, but strictly in terms of point spread wouldn't be the biggest surprise in the world, is Florida State and Miami. Miami is an 11.5 point favorite. Now, if you are going strictly on performance you've seen so far this year, you'd think Miami by 90, right? You've seen them against UAB, which is a solid team. They got their feet under them, and then they scalded Louisville last week. And Florida State had happened to them what happened to them against Georgia Tech, and that's a Tech team. We're going really deep in the weeds here that has since gone on to be really handled at the hands of UCF on their home field. So you figure, oh, man, there must be quite a wide gap between these teams. Well, I mean, 11 points is a wide gap. Don't get me wrong, but bigger upsets happen every week than this. Outright upsets. So Florida State, I'll be honest with you, that one would surprise me. It certainly would, but I will say this too. You know, I think there may be a false impression in people's minds about the potency of Miami's offense. Uh, That is one of the more misleading final scores relative to what's going to happen from here on out that there was last week. And I don't mean that I don't like the upside of Miami's offense. What I do mean is there were a lot of points scored in that game that I don't think is indicative of what their offense is going to look like week to week. I think their offense is going to have to be week to week, a lot more physical, ground-based, play action, RPO-based, and it's not going to be, oh, look, there's a receiver with his own acre of land over here. Let me just toss it to him. Or a back out of the backfield, let me toss it to him. That was great. I mean, those plays count. It's not like they don't. But because of that, I think when you look at this and you say, oh, 11 points, oh, Miami will pull away easily. Well, maybe they will, but I don't necessarily think it's time for us to start developing that style in our mind as the style that Miami plays with. Not yet. Maybe that's coming, but I don't think it's fully there yet. Elsewhere I'm looking, I don't really see any other games that I think would qualify for big upsets. So that's a scan of the board, and certainly if one's going to happen, I guess we touched on it. I don't think we predicted any of them, but... You know, the way to do it, Bama Stanley, is you got to do it in a way where you touch on every game. You'll notice some of the more skilled fence riders out there, they do it this way. You know, they pull up a game and they say, hmm, Florida State, Miami. You know, I now I'm not calling the upset, but, you know, Florida State could sneak around there. And boy, that could be a close game in the fourth quarter. And if it's close, anything could happen. And what you do there is, you get two clippable sound bites, okay? So if Miami rolls, you go and you clip the part where you said, oh, I'm not calling an upset. But then if Florida State ends up winning that thing, you leave the first part off. And then you just clip the last part where you said, hey, Florida State, anything could happen. And then you clip that and you put a fancy caption and a hashtag and you tweet it out and you say, called it. Maybe put the shruggy emoji in there with it. Called it. That's how the skilled fence riders do it. We'll see how skilled that... uh we pretend to be after this weekend, depending on what happens. 
Kyle is next with what I think is one of the most important questions in the fashion world in decades. Kyle says, it's not necessarily college, but what are your thoughts on Bill Belichick's hoodie that he was wearing with holes all in the neck? Kyle, I could not be any bigger fan of this if I tried. I am someone who, um, let's see, to put this mildly, does not really value fashion all that much. I know this is shocking, but you are listening to a guy who has worn the same shirt on his show every broadcast for the past several years, going way back before the 24-7 sports days. And um, people ask why, and I ask why not. And it kind of flusters him. It's like, what do you mean? Everyone's supposed to have 47 different shirts they're choosing from every week, and that may be the way you go about it. But I really feel like, in a lot of ways, I don't want to sound insensitive here, but I feel like in a previous life, I grew up in a very impoverished country. I've only, in this lifetime, I've only been in the United States. I've never been out of this country before. I have never, you know, taken like a mission trip to Honduras. I've got some buddies who have. That's why I mentioned Honduras. I've never been out of this country. Yet, for some reason, I've always intrinsically had perspective that is very global in nature. And by global, I don't mean globalist in the classical sense. I mean I understand like how incredibly blessed I am to live where I live. And I understand that I, like I'm sitting here recording right now in my apartment and there are like four shirts that are draped over a chair over here off to my left. That's like a more, that's a deeper wardrobe than a very, very alarmingly high percentage of the world population has. And uh, there's a case of water, for example, on my counter right here. Uh, that's more water than an alarmingly high percentage of the global population has access to. Point being, I'm cool with having what I have. And I don't really make a point to go have this like really, really deep wardrobe. So even if I were a billionaire, that wouldn't change. I say all that to say this. Bill Belichick is my hero right now. Bill Belichick is my fashion north star. And I am using Bill Belichick's fashion decisions to guide my direction in life. And if I ever see Belichick start walking down the sidelines in a three-piece suit, then I'll know it's time for me to change. But until Bill Belichick changes, I'm not changing. I'll wear the same red sleeveless shirt that I've worn for years to go work out in. I'll wear the same white shirt that I've worn for years to do the show in. And when we're off the air and out of the gym, I may just wear even less than that. It removes so much hassle and so many issues. I hope I haven't been unclear. Next up, Austin. Florida can score on anyone, and that defense is good enough to hold anyone except Clemson under 21. I understand Georgia's defense is better than Florida's, but I don't see why that matters since they aren't on the field at the same time. What are your thoughts? Austin, I, I want to know what your thoughts are. What are, you, what are you telling me here? Are you telling me, I guess you're telling me Florida's going to win the East. I guess that's what the prediction is. And the only team you really see giving Florida trouble is Clemson. You know, that's bold. So um, I do believe in one thing that you said. I am not a believer. Well, I guess I, that was counterintuitive. I, I believe that you made a good point here. I'll say it like that. You said Georgia's defense and Florida's defense won't be on the field at the same time. Well, that's a good point. That's why I also never do this quarterback versus quarterback headline. You will never in a million years hear me say, Oh, to a tongue of Iloa versus Joe Burrow Saturday. No, it's Alabama versus LSU Saturday. If anything, it's Joe Burrow versus 
Alabama's secondary or defensive line. That's the unit and unit matchup that will be on the field at the same time. So you're saying their defense won't be on the field at the same time, therefore it's irrelevant. Well, that's partly true. They won't be on the field at the same time. It's very irrelevant that Georgia's defense, according to you, and I agree with this, starts the season better than Florida. Not worlds better, but better than Florida. It matters because of the matchup. You have to face that Georgia defense, first off. Second off, I disagree completely with the notion that Florida's defense would hold any team in America under 21 points except maybe Clemson. I don't think that hold Alabama under 21 points. I don't think that hold Ohio State under 21 points. I don't think they'll hold every offense on their schedule as is under 21 points. And that's not necessarily a slide against Florida. You've got to be insanely generationally good to be holding college offenses under 21 points. I don't know if we've been paying attention lately. There's a level you get to in this sport. And since we're talking about the elite teams now, kind of a separate point here, but there's a, there's a point you get to in this sport where if you're at a certain level offensively, you're scoring on anyone, maybe not 50, but you're scoring on anyone. And so even the best defenses, now I could say this about Georgia right now. One of my points about Georgia is as great as that defense may be, there's going to, they're going to come a time. It maybe it's in week four when they play Alabama uh, maybe they'll play Alabama again. Maybe they'll play LSU and LSU's got their act together. Maybe they go to the playoff and they play Clemson or Ohio State. Point being, you need to go into those games assuming 24 is the, that's the baseline. That's offensively what an elite offense is going to get on you. Then what are you going to do? How are you going to score on them? Again, there's a big difference between giving up 24 versus you know being in Oklahoma shoes and saying, oh, can we hold them under 50 in the first half? That's not a joke. That actually was the playoff situation that Oklahoma found themselves in. So I guess I say all that to say, by fractions of an inch, I still lean Georgia in the SEC East. Uh, but a lot of that's going to obviously hinge on quarterback play. And um, until then... I lean on Georgia's defense, so I do value how good that defense is, but I also at the same time think there's reason for Florida to be optimistic. Like that's If you want to talk about fence riding, the ultimate fence riding is my thoughts on the East right now, because I'm not convicted on either side of that equation. Next up is PSU for life. I pulled up the wrong document. Hold on. All right, here we go. Don't even cut that out. Don't worry about it, Jordan. Next up is uh, PSU for life, as I just said. What do you think about Ohio State, Penn State being week two for our new offensive coordinator, Kirk Soraka? I don't love it being in week two as a PSU fan because we still may be searching for an offensive identity. Yeah, I agree with you here. That game was circled by everyone. That whiteout game, it was going to be, I think, November 7th on the original schedule. Sometime in November. Anyway, well, that's out the window. That's like a generation ago now. So now, as you said, Penn State plays host to Ohio State in week two. I agree with you. I, I, don't, I don't think that Penn State will have things sorted out. I don't think they will be what they ultimately will be offensively. And for that matter, I don't think that they will be at any point this season what they ultimately will be offensively. And that stands to reason. I mean, that may have been the case either way, even if you had spring. But at least if you had spring and you drew something like this in week two, you'd have a lot more confidence. I hope that they're respectable. I hope it's a competitive game because what you could do coming out of that is you know, you could come out of that and say, ah, oh, let's see, okay, um, 30, 34-23. 
Let's just say that was the final. 34-23. That's respectable. Uh, you probably covered a spread in that situation. Eh, maybe covered a spread. I don't know. Maybe shorter than that. But you came out and you had a lot to take away. You had a lot of positives to draw. And what you do then is you look and say, okay, let's, let's say this is going to be our only loss. And let's go through the rest of this schedule, which Penn State very well can do. Go through the rest of that schedule and just let the chips fall where they may. Maybe Ohio State doesn't come close to losing a game. And if they don't, then they don't. But at the very least, what that sets you up to do is it sets you up to feel great about yourself moving forward. And then secondly, it sets you up in this particular year to put yourself in a position where who knows what's happening with the postseason picture. Who knows? It's unlikely, certainly, that the Big Ten would get two teams in this year. But even if you don't get one in, first-year offensive coordinator, craziness going on off the field, Micah Parsons opts out, all that happens and you're still in the New Year Six rotation, I think I'd take that all day long. So I agree with you. Offensive identity, it's uh, totally unrealistic to think that that's going to be in place by week two, and that's going to be a really tough draw. It'll be a tough draw for an established team, regardless. So, yeah, let's, let's just take it in stride. Uh, we continue here. Fun morning. I had uh, probably the next 25 minutes of this podcast recorded and then looked down and realized, oh, oh, the audio changed sources. That's great. So it sounded like you would have been listening to me from at least two rooms away. So I couldn't do that to you. So we uh, re-racked it here and we are going to restart. So this is my second time through. So if these answers still suck, then you should judge me even more harshly than you would normally judge me. All right, so where was I here? Ah, yes. So Banana Nut, which is a husband-wife combo in the podcast review section. Five-star reviews, please, by the way. They left one, and then they left a question, and I'm answering it because that's how the process works. Banana Nut asks, it's like a tag team, Banana Nut asks, there's always a lot of focus on head coaches, but what are some examples of wives contributing to their success on and off the field? This is a good question. I'll give you two examples that I know of. These are just ones I've experienced. The first, and I've told this story before. I'll tell a quick version of it. Back in 2017, Auburn goes to LSU. I was at the game. I was on the field as LSU is down 20 to nothing. Thought Auburn was just going to run away with it. Went to the halftime press room early. Ate my halftime meal early. And then LSU started closing the gap a little bit. So I figure, oh my, this game's not over. Turns out we're not leaving early after all, are we? Which I never would anyway. But go back out on the field, proceed to watch LSU storm all the way back and win the game. Very uncomfortable post-game situation in the Auburn press room there, in the bowels of Tiger Stadium, in a little broom closet that they also have double as a press room. I'm not complaining. So um, I'm in there. The Auburn contingency is in there. I think Brandon Marcello would have been in there at the time. Yeah, Marcello was covering Auburn at the time, so he probably was in there. I don't know if he was participating in what I'm about to say. I don't think he was. But a lot of the Auburn folks, I mean, people who covered the team, they were very vocal in their criticism of Malzahn, which is fine. That's part of the job. But, you know, they were tossing around openly the idea that this is it. He's going to be canned. I mean, this is the last straw. He's going to be fired. Who's next? Who's going to replace him? And you may not find that to be all that shocking or all that surprising. Well, here's where the wife comes in. Christy Malzahn was in the room. She was leaned up against the wall. She could hear all that. I don't know if you know this. I don't know how privy the cameras make you aware to this, but wives of head coaches are in most every post-game press conference. 
Christy Malzahn's been in every one I've ever seen. Every Auburn game I've ever been to, she's in the post-gamer. Terry Saban, Nick Saban's wife, been at every game I've ever been to. Nick Saban's mom, believe it or not, is at most every game that I've been to for Alabama. And they are in the post-game press room. A lot of times, on the road, you have reporters who volunteer to get up and give their seats to Nick Saban and his wife and his mom. And they're as gracious as can be. They hate to take your seat. They say, no, 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 no. You do your job. You sit there. And so there's this little fight over who's going to get to sit down. And uh, she always wins, believe it or not. Uh, So anyway, back to the Auburn situation. Christy Malzahn's there, and she's listening to all this. And I am certain that a confrontation is about to break out. I got my cell phone. I'm ready to record it. And it never does. She just sits there. She can hear it. She didn't even look over there. So that day passes. Auburn goes back out on the road the next week. They beat Arkansas. They kind of get things balanced out. You know the story. They go on to beat number one Georgia. They go on to beat number one Alabama. Uh, Three weeks span there. They beat two number one teams in the country. And then they win the SEC West. They go to Atlanta. Malzahn, during that week of the SEC title game, he and his representation leverage Auburn into getting a new deal, which obviously set them up for life. And Christy Malzahn, I remember so vividly, she put out something on like Facebook, I think it was, and he's just kind of a little smiley face. And I just, I just understood the full context. And so I remember, man, like it's a very first world problem. You think, oh, those coaches' wives. Yeah, okay, man, maybe, maybe it can be a tough week here or there if you lose a game, but you guys make so much money. Money doesn't absolve you of those issues. Money just gives you access to a job, which gives you a new set of problems. I mean, you think about them. They don't have any control. At least the coach has control. The coach affects what happens on Saturday. The wife has no effect on it. She just kind of has to sit there and wait for whatever happens to happen. And is the next week going to be happy or miserable? Are my kids going to go to school and me have to worry about them hearing things about their dad or not? That's a different world. Most of us don't live in that world. It doesn't matter if you make $10 billion a year. Those are concerns. And so that's kind of a different lifestyle. It's a very somewhat somewhat a nomadic lifestyle, depending on how many jobs you have. But anyway, I remember that. And then also, uh, since I mentioned her, Terry Saban at Alabama runs the foundation up there, essentially. She probably, I don't know how many hours she works a week. She probably works the equivalent of a full-time job just running the Knicks Kids Foundation there. They do so much good work. Some of it's publicized. Some of it's not. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard over the years from people personally getting help from Nick Saban and you say, I didn't read about that and he didn't want you reading about it. But then they also do foundation work and they do a lot of great work in Tuscaloosa and that's not the only place they do it. I just happen to know Terry Saban is intimately involved with the day-to-day of that operation. But I think you guys would really love if you could be there in one of those pre-game or post-game settings and you, you know, you see Saban on the sideline, like you, you see him as a tyrant and you see the clips from press conferences, man, you ought to see him with his mom. You ought to see him with his wife there before or after the game. Different side, to say the least, of the Nick Saban that you see on TV and you think you know from seeing him on TV. That was a good question there, though. But the, the, to wrap up, I kind of left out the most important part, recruiting. That's where the wife comes into play the most recruiting as much as an offensive coordinator or maybe, you know, the engineering department dean, if you've got a kid who's going to go to school for engineering and they give the tour of the campus and the game day experience and the head coach, as much as you think that may hook a kid, there are several examples 
of a recruit ultimately going to a school because the wife of the head coach developed a relationship with the mother of the recruit, and that landed the comfortability factor that was necessary in order for the mom to sign off on her kid going off to that university. That is where the wife shines in a way that very few people ever are familiar with. You will never know how involved and how important the wife of your head coach is in the recruiting effort for your program. So that's a good, uh, good question there. Next up is Husker for Life. Oh, I didn't see this question the first time. Well, good. You know what? God works in mysterious ways. It's a great thing that that first 25 minutes ended up having to be thrown away. Because Husker for Life asks, what is the best concert you ever went to? As I've said before, Fleetwood Mac is the greatest band in the history of the earth. And that's not debatable. That's just a fact. We all know that. But I was born long after most of their hits were released. And I did not grow up in an era where Fleetwood Mac was touring. So I couldn't go see them. So I just heard them. I never got to see them. Same with the Eagles. I grew up listening to classic rock, which had been recorded and released long before I was born. But I still loved it. Still do love it. And there was a time that came around, it was the, uh, it was not that long ago, it was within the last seven years, they both toured. And so I went in the span of a couple of months, in one summer, I was able to go see Fleetwood Mac in Atlanta at Phillips Arena, as it was called then. And I went to see the Eagles in Lexington, up at Rupp Arena. Sellouts, needless to say, both times, not the bands, the arenas. And uh, so, I, you know, the one concern I had, I got a very high standard for live music. That's why I don't go watch much live music, because it doesn't sound great live. And so I, you know, I'm thinking Fleetwood Mac, okay, this is 40 years after they've recorded these. And I was just concerned that maybe the live quality is going to disappoint me. Man, within 20 seconds of their opener, which was The Chain, by the way. Perfect concert opener. If you're unfamiliar with that song, go listen to The Chain. Uh, within 20 seconds. Unbelievable. Couldn't believe it. I could not believe the quality that was executed live from a band with everybody, at least in their 60s, some in their 70s. The energy, incredible. Absolutely incredible. Two and a half hours of stuff that probably if you go down to your high interval intensity training class today, you probably won't achieve the amount of cardio that they're sitting there achieving on stage two and a half hours every night. So that was amazing. That was my favorite closely behind that, and only because I'd seen them before one time, closely behind is the Eagles. It was the last tour they took before Glenn Fry passed away, and that was up in Lexington, and that was another incredible experience. And then there's this other one. It's not one experience, but I did want to throw this in here. There is a guy by the name of Luke Bryan. A lot of people are familiar with Luke Bryan. He's a big country artist. I'm not too big a fan, to be honest with you, of most of the stuff he puts out these days. But there was a time where Luke Bryan was not known by anyone nationally. And we, down in Georgia, caught wind of this guy from Leesburg. Leesburg is like a peanut farm town that's a little bit south of Columbus, about a 45 minutes an hour south of Columbus. Uh, and it's, that's what it is. They, it's just agriculture. They grow peanuts down there. And there, so there's this kid out of Leesburg who is touring Georgia. Milledgeville, Albany, uh, Macon, Americus, Athens, the Georgia Theater in Athens for the Georgia concert scene. It's kind of like the Roman Coliseum. You're just trying to work your way to the Georgia Theater. If you can make it to the Georgia Theater, like you've made it in Georgia. And so we, I can't tell you how many times we trekked across the state of Georgia watching Luke Bryan. Luke Bryan, 
for all the subpar material in my mind now. I'm, I'm old school when it comes to country. So I, I, the old school country is real country for me. I don't like the new stuff pretty much at all. So I'm not a big fan of Luke Bryan's current catalog of material. But what if I told you that there was this entire catalog of material Luke Bryan once had when he was independent and kind of first touring that existed out there because it's out there. And boy, we used to drive all over the state of Georgia to listen to it. I, you know what I would encourage you? So look up on YouTube, a song called small town favorite son, just as an example. And that's the kind of song that I listen to. And I say, how in the world is this not on the radio? But the other stuff is, I digress. Those are some of my favorite concert memories. Good question there. Gabriel is next up. I was interested to hear what you had to say about Florida and Miami if they played. Since, this is Gabriel's words, since they're too scared to schedule Miami year-to-year basis, I guess I have to settle for the hypothetical. What do you think your number would be if Florida played Miami? What about that Miami FSU game Saturday? What do you think there? Also, what if Miami played Notre Dame? What do you think that number would be? It's important for Gabriel to note this. He said, what would your number be? So when I give you these numbers, this is not what I'm telling you the actual point spread would be. This is what my feel on the game would be. I would have Florida minus 12 over Miami right now. This is neutral field. I like Florida, or I like Miami rather, to beat Florida State this weekend. And that's the second question. The third question, I would have Notre Dame minus five against Miami. That would be our numbers, our our model. That's what I would think. Next up is Adam. Do you think a one-loss Big Ten team not named Ohio State has a legitimate shot at the playoff this year? Adam, I don't think that a one-loss Ohio State has a great shot at the playoff. So there were kind of two parts to this question. And now you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the way you phrased it, you're kind of assuming a one-loss Ohio State, they're probably still in, but any other one-loss Big Ten team, that's a different conversation. I don't think it is. I know that right now we're viewing Ohio State in this different league, because they are, at least I think they are, from the rest of the Big Ten. But that entire premise is based on the idea that we're going to be okay with Ohio State making it in the playoff as long as they're undefeated. That's the override that we're willing to give, even though they play less games, as long as they're unblemished, then a lot of people will be okay with them making the playoff. But that all changes if they lose a game. So I don't think it's any different. Then if you got a one-loss Wisconsin, one-loss Ohio State, if you put a loss in the mix, then I don't know that it's likely any of them are making it, Ohio State included. Aaron is next. Oh, this is suspicious, Aaron. You know what? I actually, this is a good place for us to break. Because if I were you, I wouldn't tune out on this one. So Aaron is asking about Eli Drinkwitz. He's the new head coach at Missouri. They have the unenviable task of playing Alabama Saturday. Aaron has some thoughts, and Aaron has some not-so-subtle suggestions on what may be happening here. We'll talk about it right after this. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings, Fantasy Warriors. I'm Heath Cummings, your guide to fantasy dominance on FFT Dynasty. 
Join me this offseason where mock drafts become epic showdowns and every pick shapes your legacy. If, if I was Adam with the team that he's built, Will Levis makes so much more sense. And that's not all. We're peeling back the curtain on the future with our exclusive 2024 NFL Draft Prospect Profiles. Uncover hidden gems that'll elevate your roster to legendary status. Puka Nakua. After Cooper Cup, we really have no idea who's going to get the targets. Keaton Mitchell of East Carolina. Explosive speed is ridiculous. This isn't just a podcast. It's a playbook for champions. Subscribe to FFT Dynasty now, and together, we'll conquer the fantasy football frontier. Your dynasty journey starts here. So Aaron says, Eli Drinkwitz. Again, that's the new head coach at Missouri. He has said that he may play a game without three quarterbacks. That sounds crazy. He did acknowledge that they would have to postpone a game if they're not able to field enough scholarship players on the O-line or D-line. Do you think Drinkwitz is just taking one for the SEC? I know the Big Ten player restrictions are probably overly restrictive, but it looks like the SEC should tighten up its rules just for safety competitive concerns. Well, they have, Aaron. I mean, they've tightened it up. I know what you're talking about here. Eli Drinkwitz has not been exactly forthcoming with the media there. So uh, let's just wait and see what they put on the field Saturday. I don't think they're going out there with no quarterbacks, is what I'm telling you. And uh, he was asked earlier this week, how close are you? How dangerously close are you to that threshold at any specific position for not having enough players? And his response was, we like to live dangerously. He said, we got 69 scholarship players for Saturday's game. I mean, we're close. We're dangerous everywhere. And so they'll be okay. And they're not going to be okay against Alabama. They're going to get run out of the building. But what I'm saying is they'll have enough players. And I don't think that the SEC would let them take the field if they didn't have enough players. Now, as for the restrictions and whatnot, I think something is going to be done about contact tracing and the current protocol. Because right now the current protocol is, is becoming more and more outdated by the day. When you have access to daily testing that major conferences do and will have access to, the contact tracing and mandatory sit-out periods of X number days, I think that's going to go by the wayside pretty quickly. Matthew is next. Who are some forgotten star college quarterbacks you wish people remembered more? I personally feel like one of them has got to be Colt Brennan. Colt Brennan of Hawaii fame. I think the reason Colt Brennan has been largely forgotten by most people outside of Hawaii is the lasting impression you got was of him being splattered all over the Superdome by Georgia. And that was the time where everybody thought Hawaii was going to have their big chance to have their, you know, their Boise State moment. And it was not. It was a Mack truck moment. And so I think if that game would have gone differently, people would remember him differently. The Hawaii quarterback I always remember is Timmy Chang. The Hawaii quarterback that I have fond memories of. That's the one I have fond memories of is Timmy Chang. That may have been back when Hawaii still wore the rainbow on the side of their helmets, which I always loved that logo. I loved it. And then they had to switch it for, I don't know what reasons they switched it for, but I mean, it reminded me of Lucky Charms, which was my favorite breakfast cereal. So I would wake up on Saturday morning, I would eat my Lucky Charms, and then I look in the bowl and there's the rainbow. And then I look on TV and there's this team wearing a rainbow on the side of their helmet. And I don't care if they're playing halfway to Japan. That's fine. I'll watch them anyway. That's the magic of TV. But I'll tell you another one more recently and one that I was a little bit closer to. Blake Sims at Alabama's story is just incredible. Blake Sims played at Gainesville High School in Georgia. Same place Deshaun Watson played. Those were the quarterbacks they were pumping out of there. And uh, they played Harris County High School, which is my alma mater. 
And I was at the game. I didn't go at the time. I was already graduated, but I was at a game where they played Gainesville. They played Blake Sims, and Blake Sims ran a rough shot all over Harris County. And so I, you know, I, I know he had some offers and he ends up committing to Alabama, but it was one of those deals where all right, there's this kid at Alabama and he they're gonna give him some reps at quarterback, you know, just to make sure they have emergency depth there. But he's gonna play wide receiver, defensive back. That's what he'll end up at. And anytime you hear that at Alabama, the translation is there is a 0% chance this kid's going to play quarterback at Alabama. And also during that time, there was a quarterback battle at Florida State going on between a kid named Jameis Winston, I think we all remember him, and a kid named Jacob Coker. It was neck and neck. Jimbo Fisher, head coach down there at the time, said, this is neck and neck. I mean, this is 1A and 1B, and Jameis Winston ends up winning the job. He goes on to win the ACC, win the Heisman, win the national championship. And Coker transferred to Alabama later. So all Alabama folks know is Jameis Winston just did that. We've got a kid who, according to Jimbo Fisher, is every bit as good as Jameis Winston, and he's coming here. We finally got our premier quarterback. And so the spring game comes around, and Blake Sims looked awful in the A-Day game, which furthered the sentiment that, oh, Jacob Coker, I mean, he's going to be the guy. Off-season workouts, you hear these rumors about Jacob Coker, fall camp comes, but the thing about it was Nick Saban was not saying the same things. And Nick Saban said it's a quarterback competition. And Blake Sims ends up winning the job outright. No one was hurt. No one was injured. He just won the job outright. And then Blake Sims won the SEC West outright, including a come-from-behind win at LSU. And then Blake Sims won the SEC championship. And that story was one of the most incredible that I've been around. Because Blake Sims was doubted at every turn. He was an afterthought at every turn, including in my mind. That's why I remember it so vividly. And Blake Sims was never a guy who would go to Twitter and talk about all these people doubting him. He was never a guy with all kinds of uh, locker room material, as they call it, hanging in his locker. He was never a dude who walked around with a giant chip on his shoulder, as humble as can be, as nice as could be, but as fierce a competitor as could be too. And he was a guy that it's impossible not to root for. Just a great story. A kid who was doubted and who never had this vengeful attitude about it, It, even though he had reason to. He just went about his business. It was like Nick Saban was able to opened the top of his head and programmed Blake Sims the exact way you would want him programmed, and then closed his head back up, and Blake Sims just went about his business, man. It was really fun to watch. All right, we got a really, really busy week coming. We've got a really busy weekend. SEC football is here. Uh, We have got a ton going on on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Please make sure that you're there. Please make sure you are subscribed. We Those subscriber numbers are climbing every day, and I want to see that continue. The five-star reviews here, I want to see those continue. And thank you so much for making those happen. Again, we will have full wall-to-wall coverage of everything going on in the world of college football. Make sure you follow me on Twitter, if you haven't already, at LateKickJosh. I got to sign off here because I got a busy Thursday ahead of me. I'll see you guys later tonight on Late Kick Live. Have a great rest of your day and God bless. It's the NFL offseason, but on Pick 6, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. 
Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Ducible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must-listen. Download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found. 